Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a very special episode for you. But before we get started, I just want to preface today's episode by making it abundantly clear that the information I'm sharing today is not about condemnation. But I'm going to warn you, it will likely bring conviction. It did for me anyway, as I was compiling all of this information. But I hope you keep in mind that I'm simply presenting the history of this holiday with zero intention of throwing stones. Today, I'm simply sharing the information and you can do with it what you want. So with that, we're going to plunge headfirst into Christmas because there's so much to unpack, starting with Santa Claus. Now, most people believe that the origins of Santa Claus can be traced back to a 3rd century monk named St. Nicholas. He was supposedly born into a wealthy family, and he was known for his kindness and giving away all of his inheritance to the poor and the sick. Dutch immigrants eventually brought his story to America. In Dutch, St. Nicholas was pronounced Sinter Niklaus which was eventually reduced to Sinterklaas and ultimately became Santa Claus. So although this is where the name originated, the traditions of Christmas go back way further than just the 3rd century. In fact, they go all the way back to the Norse god Odin, who I briefly connected last week to the biblical Nimrod. And as we've discussed numerous times throughout this podcast, after the languages were confused at the Tower of Babel and the people are dispersed, Nimrod becomes known under different names in the different civilizations and languages, but his story remained the same. In every civilization, he was known as the sun god, and at some point he dies or is killed. There are varying accounts throughout the different cultures as to the cause of his death. However, in every account, his wife later gives birth to a son who's believed to be his reincarnation. In Babylon, it was Nimrod and Tammuz. In Egypt, it was Osiris and Horus. In Rome, it was Jupiter and Apollo. And in Scandinavia, it was Odin and Thor, all of which are the counterfeit of God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son. And in the same way that you have a counterfeit father and son story, you also have a counterfeit Mother Mary. In Babylon, she was Semiramis. In Egypt, she was Isis. In Rome, she was Diana. And in Greece, she was Aphrodite or Venus. And in most civilizations, she was connected to the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, which is really a total mockery of the mother of Jesus Christ, because although she's depicted as Virgo, this pagan goddess was known in every single civilization as a goddess of fertility and sexuality. In some cases, she was the very origins of the perversion of sexuality by encouraging pornography and homosexual relations. She's quite literally the whore of Babylon in Revelations chapter 17. And she gives birth to the pagan son of God. Now, the winter solstice falls right smack dab in the dead of winter when the sun reaches minimum visibility. It's the shortest day of the year. So for sun-worshipping cultures, they interpreted this as the death of the sun. 
the death of their sun god, which is immediately followed by what was considered the rebirth of the sun, when the days once again start growing longer. And this is why every pagan god of the ancient world died on December 21st and was reborn on December 25th. And therefore, during the winter solstice, they would celebrate basically the death, burial, and resurrection of their god. In Rome, it was called the Festival of Saturnalia. In Greece, it was Cronia. In Germany, it became known as the Yule Festival. In fact, the word Yule in Chaldean, the ancient Babylonian language from 800 years before Christ, literally translates the Day of the Infant, referencing the birthday of the pagan son of God. And the Germans adopted this Yule festival from the ancient Scandinavian tradition of Odin, who was also called the Yule Fadre, which translates Yule Father. And he was often depicted as an old man with a long white beard who carried a trident-shaped spear. In fact, the trident was the symbol of every pagan sun god. And Odin was believed to travel around the world on a flying white horse that had eight legs, which was later adapted to be Santa's original eight reindeer. Rudolph was added to the story years later. And Odin was also accompanied by two black ravens, which were essentially spies that kept him informed about what was happening throughout the world. And these later became known as his dark helpers or black jacks, who would inform him whether children were good or bad. And I hate to break it to you, but the original Yule to the Vikings was eerily similar to Halloween for the Celtics. The Vikings believed that the time of Yule was magical, especially at night. And exactly like the Celtic festival of Samhain that we discussed at Halloween, the Vikings believed that during Yule, the barrier between our world and the spirit world was at its thinnest. And therefore, they promoted the idea that Odin, who was the god of the dead, would leave Asgard during Yule and visit Earth, disguised in a long red hooded cloak, where he would lead a group of demonic spirits in a wild hunt. And these spirits would bring blessing or justice to those who didn't show them proper respect. Eventually, children began leaving their boots by the fireplace filled with straw and carrots for his eight-legged horse. And it was believed that he would fill their boots with gifts in return. The Celtics even left treats of milk and pastries out to appease any of the spirits who may wander down their chimney into the fireplace. And at some point in history, the story of Odin collides with the story of St. Nicholas, and both characters, being so similar in appearance, merge into one. And he's depicted as wearing a white dress with a red cloak, very similar to the clothing of the bishop St. Nicholas, along with carrying a bishop's crozier instead of a trident. But unlike St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, as he becomes known, always rode through the skies, carrying with him dark helpers. And these helpers were nothing like the cute little elves of today. His original helpers were half-goat, half-demon hybrids, 
with large horns, and they became known as Krampus, which originated from the German word Krampen, which means claw. And a quick Google search of Krampus will lead you not only to the old pictures as they were depicted in very vintage Christmas cards, but also to pictures of them today. The arrival of Santa Claus with Krampus is still celebrated in countries like Germany and Austria. In fact, I posted a video in our Facebook group page of the Krampus celebration observed just this year. And whereas Santa would reward the good little children, Krampus is known for beating the bad children. And the original gifts that Odin was believed to leave in the boots of children eventually included him leaving them under his sacred tree. Evergreen trees have long been worshipped by pagan cultures, including the Vikings, as a symbol of fertility and the promise of a new life in spring. In fact, in some cases, they were believed to be magical because they remained green all year long. In ancient German and Norse tradition, the evergreens were often decorated with small carvings of the gods and with food. And this practice goes back even further than that. In Jeremiah chapter 10, we're told, quote, Do not learn the ways of the nations, for the practices of these nations are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with the hammer and nails so that it will not totter." Unquote. Now, this is actually not referencing a Christmas tree. It's really referencing an idol made from trees and then covered in silver and gold. But it's what the Christmas tree came to represent, a modern-day idol symbolic of the pagan god and the pagan religion who did this exact same thing throughout history. And in Christianity today, we quite literally cut down a tree in the forest and adorn it in silver and gold. And we even sing songs to it, just like they did in the pagan religion. And in the old days, it was topped with an eight-pointed star, which actually represents the ancient sunburst. If you Google images of the ancient eight-pointed star, you'll find it throughout many civilizations as one of the most predominant symbols of Ishtar or Isis or Semiramis or Venus, all aliases of the same woman married to the sun god, Nimrod. And this is verified on the 3,000-year-old Sumerian tablets found in the city of Uruk, an ancient Sumerian city in southern Iraq, which literally identify Ishtar as the eight-pointed star. In other words, the evergreen tree has long represented the sun god. The eight-pointed star has long represented his wife. And both are incorporated into the birthday celebration of their son during the winter solstice. And as I said before, evergreens were long considered to have magical fertility powers. The Celts offered mistletoe to their gods in prayer and hung it in their homes to ward off evil spirits. In Rome, during the festival of Saturnalia, the Romans would hang mistletoe and have drunken orgies underneath it because it was believed to increase fertility. And this is where we get the idea of kissing under the mistletoe. 
Now, by the 1930s, Coca-Cola was looking to modify their Christmas advertisements with a more modern version of Santa. So they brought in an illustrator who used a poem from 1822 to guide his design of Santa. Now, that poem is widely known today as "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." And from his illustration, jolly old St. Nick came to life. Coca-Cola advertised him delivering toys, opening letters, playing with children, raiding refrigerators, and even enjoying a bottle of Coca-Cola. By 1942, Coca-Cola introduced Sprite Boy, who appeared with Santa all throughout the 1940s and 50s. Now, he got his name because he was a Sprite, which came from the Latin word for spirit, a term used widely in European folklore for fairies and elves. If you remember from episode 8, these trickster spirits were long considered the demonic spirits of the ancient gods who visited during times when the veil to the spirit world was the most thin, namely at Halloween. And from Sprite Boy, we get Santa's little helper elves. And there's a couple more things that I want to point out about Santa before we discuss the actual birth of Christ. Now, during the medieval period, plays were all the rage, and there was a series of morality plays that became hugely popular. The main character of these plays represented every human being, while the remaining characters represented the virtues or the vices who sought to win control of the man's soul. While the virtues in the play were viewed as messengers of God, the vices were viewed as messengers of the devil. And eventually, the character who played the vice became known as Old Iniquity. Iniquity eventually morphed into Old Nick. And therefore, Old Nick began to be widely recognized as a direct reference to the devil himself. And people used Old Nick as the very name of the devil. In fact, this may be where we derive the term nickname. It's believed to be a nod to the hoodwinking or the deceiving of the devil, who, being confused by the wrong name, is never able to fetch his intended victim. Now, during the Elizabethan era, Shakespeare wrote a ballad about a character called Robin Goodfellow, who was based off of a demonic shape-shifting deceiver that was known throughout ancient cultures as a fairy or elf called Puck. Now, Puck literally translates demon. And during the plays that contained this devilish character, Robin Goodfellow, he had a trademark laugh, which is how he would announce himself to the audience before appearing on stage as the devil. And his trademark laugh was ho, ho, ho. And here's a final thought about old Saint Nick. In Genesis 11, we're told that the Tower of Babel was built on a plain in Shinar. Now, in the early 1800s, a Scottish minister named Alexander Hislop connected the word Shinar to two different Hebrew words. Sheen, meaning repeat, and Nar, meaning childhood. Therefore, Shinar literally translates repeat childhood. Basically, Babylon is the practice of repeating childhood. 
Now, maybe this is a reference to the events that happened at Babel being an identical repeat of the events that happened prior to the flood when the world was still in its infancy. Or could it also be a reference to the ancient spirit of Yule that originated with Nimrod or Odin, which continues to entangle those who celebrate Christmas in an endless loop of nostalgia where we repeat our childhood. Now let's talk about the actual birthday of Christ. I've actually shared this information back in episode 5 when I covered the fall feast of tabernacles. So if you want more information, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. But the gist of it is that Christ wasn't born in winter. The winter solstice was the birthday of the pagan god for centuries before Christ came along. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that Caesar Augustus was conducting a census of the entire Roman world, and Joseph carried Mary there to register. And I put forth the idea that rather than conducting this census in the middle of winter, it was most likely conducted in fall during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of only two Jewish holy days when all Jews, not just the males, had to present themselves at the temple. So what better time to conduct a census than when they're all coming right to your doorstep? And scripture tells us that while they were there, Mary gives birth, but there was no place for them to stay. So she gives birth and places Christ in a manger. And this is yet another confirmation of the thousands of Jews who would have been in town celebrating the feast. And this is why there was nowhere for them to stay. In fact, it's speculated that she actually delivered Christ in a temporary tent one of the hundreds of tabernacles that would have been constructed as the very representation of this feast. And they even made them for their animals, which is probably where he was born. And then we're told that there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks when the angel appeared to them and announced the birth. Well, logically, the shepherds wouldn't be living out in the fields in the dead of winter, and neither would their livestock. In fact, it was tradition for the shepherds to bring their cattle in from the fields, usually around the middle of October, shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles every year, to protect them during winter. And not only that, but we can pretty much pinpoint the actual birth date of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, we're told the story of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah served as a priest in the temple, and each priestly family were assigned to serve a certain week throughout the year. And we're given this information in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, which tells us the exact week that Zechariah would have served. Now, we're told in Luke chapter 1 that while he was serving his term, an angel appeared to him right next to the altar and startled him. And he's told that God has heard his prayer and that his wife will soon bear him a son. So after he completed his term, he returned home and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. In verse 26, we're told that when she was six months pregnant, Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, is told by an angel that she too is pregnant. 
and the time frame of this visit would fall right around the end of December. So, nine months later, Christ's birth falls right smack dab in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles on the Hebrew calendar in fall, lining up exactly with his birth story in Scripture. Now, throughout history, the children of God seemed to struggle with temptation to convert pagan things for God. And I heard something recently that really clicked with me. It was from Rabbi Eric Walker, who was talking on Skywatch TV. And he basically said that the pagan religions were more committed to their sin and to their vision than the body of Messiah has ever been committed to the Lord. And we have not maintained as solid of a stand as these pagan cultures did in being able to sacrifice their lives and the lives of their children in honor of their God. They were so committed that they put vast amounts of energy even into the temples and altars, the architecture they built for their God. And you can see how it would be tempting as the Jews reclaimed the land for God to want to leave these magnificent temples and altars in place and simply scratch out the name of the pagan God and claim it for Almighty God. But in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God commands them to, quote, destroy completely all of the places on high mountains, on hills, and under every tree, break their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their idols, and wipe their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Be careful not to be ensnared by wondering how they served their gods and thinking that you will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all that I command. Do not add to it or take away from it." Unquote. But unfortunately, this was soon forgotten. And shortly after the death of Christ, the Catholic Church picked up this torch and ran with it. They too attempted to conquer paganism by converting it for God. When the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in the 4th century, he declared that the birthday of Christ would be celebrated on December 25th as a way of making Christianity more easily accessible and convenient for the pagans to convert to. After all, they already had holiday traditions in place for this day, so it became easy to just celebrate it for Christ instead. But skip forward 1,700 years, and Christians today don't know this history. And in our attempt to spread the gospel, we compromised on things that ultimately and fundamentally changed our religion. And I want to share with you a quote from Barna Group. It's a company that monitors cultural trends throughout Christianity. And they came out with a yearly review a few years ago in which they said, quote, the problem facing the Christian church is not that people lack a complete set of beliefs. The problem is that they have a full slate of beliefs in mind, which they think are consistent with biblical teachings, and they are neither open to being proven wrong nor to learning new insights." Unquote. 
And this is exactly where we find ourselves today, celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior on the very birthday of his darkest enemy, adorning our homes in pagan symbolism associated with this same deity. And we wage wars to keep Christ in Christmas in an attempt to reclaim something for Christ that was never his to begin with. And this is the level of deception that has crept into our religion because of our compromises in the past. And whether or not this is what Christmas means to you, when God sees us using the idols of the enemy in an attempt to bring him glory, although we only see the good intentions of our own hearts, he sees the deceiver who has relentlessly tried to lead his children astray. He sees the thousands of innocent children that were brutally sacrificed on altars to this demonic deity. And he has witnessed for millennia our entrapment by this enemy as sheep led to slaughter. And he himself said in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And he knows full well that the plan of this enemy is far from over. He's still roaming about like a roaring lion deceiving the nations. And how much joy do you think the devil gets from watching those of us who fight under the flag of El Kanah, our all-consuming fire of a jealous God, worship and celebrate our God through the very things that not only represent his enemy, but that he himself has told us over and over that he detests. And that's where we're going to end today. Now, next week, we're going to finish up part three of our study on the pagan influence of America. And I'm going to share in depth the spirits that are guiding our country towards global governance and the new world order. It expounds on everything that I shared today. And I think you're going to be surprised at just how close we actually are to seeing some major biblical prophecy events come to pass. As always, if you've enjoyed today's content, please hit the subscribe button, rate and review today's episode. I'd love to hear your feedback and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.